Let's pray together. Father, we, we ask you now to quiet our hearts and our minds to engage us with the wonder of worshiping you through the study and consideration of your word. Feed us that we might worship you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're familiar with this tune, I suppose. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above, He is looking down to crush you. That song doesn't go that way, does it? Sometimes that's how people feel about their relationship toward the Lord. It's if I don't watch my P's and my Q's, He's just going to crush me. The song actually says he is looking down in love. Holding a proper view of God is vitally important. And this morning, for a few moments, we want to try to understand some of the complexities of our God. Some of the complexities of our God. We'll do so by looking at two triplets of God's character. Two triplets of God's character. The first triplet is God is holy, righteous, and just. God is holy, righteous, and just. His holiness speaks to how perfectly different or how perfectly unique He is. He is not like us. He is perfectly pure. And perfectly good. God's righteousness speaks to how perfectly right He is in every action and every perspective. He sets the standard for what is right, and His ways are always reflective of that standard. God is holy. God is righteous. And then God is just. He is just. His justice speaks to how perfectly right He is in how perfectly He requires, excuse me, it speaks to how perfectly He requires His righteous standards in His creation. In other words, in God's righteousness, He determines what's right And He always does what is right. And in God's justice, God requires what is right from the things He has made. We'll see a bit of that concept in Ecclesiastes 5 this morning. The second triplet of God's character that we want to pay attention to this morning is that God is loving, long-suffering, and merciful. Loving, long-suffering, and merciful. 
His love speaks to how perfectly He demonstrates His love. His love is not conditional. It is not temporary. And it is not earned. God sets His love on a person and He never withdraws that love. His love is permanent. His long-suffering speaks to how perfectly He bears with us in our sinfulness. He patiently awaits our repentance and our faith. And His mercy speaks to how perfectly He forgives all of our iniquity, going so far as to say He forgives our sin as far as the east is from the west. You'll notice one consistent word in each definition. Perfectly. See, God is perfect. These character traits, you can call them attributes, you can call them characteristics, or you can call them perfections. God perfectly exhibits love, long-suffering, and mercy. God perfectly exhibits holiness, righteousness, and justice. We could actually spend the rest of our days trying to exhaust the perfections of our God and we would still come up lacking in our understanding. There is more to learn. We would never exhaust our understanding of our awesome God. As we consider Him today, what I would say to begin with is this. You want to be on the right side of His justice. You want to be on the right side of His judgment. Listen to a few sobering passages. They'll be on the screens to my left and my right. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, the author of Hebrews writes, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Also in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews is warning the reader, warning those that would be the recipients of the letter not to drift away, not to fall away from following wholeheartedly after Christ alone. And he writes this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And so we have some sobering Statements, And then none, none more sobering than the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, where he says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that they have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you, whom to fear? Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is a direct statement from the lips of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the incarnate word, says, I want to tell you someone you should fear. There will be a day, friends, 
when the long-suffering of God is satisfied, it will reach its fulfillment, and there will be a day of judgment. This is true for nations. Remember, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. This is true for nations. It's true for the world at large. There's a time where the, the iniquity of the world will reach its, its full. And it's true for individuals. That's the sombering and challenging news. But I want to I help us to have a balanced approach. Remember, this is the complexities of the Lord. We can be on the right side of God's judgment. We can be on the right side of God's justice. One of the most beautiful concepts that we could ever hear about is this doctrinal word, propitiation. Propitiation. It's not a word we use every day as people, but it is a vitally important doctrinal word. Propitiation. Propitiation is the settlement or satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Propitiation is the settlement or satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Who are we talking about here? Jesus took on the seed of Abraham in verse 16. Jesus took on human flesh. He had to be made like unto his brothers in every respect so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make a settlement or a satisfaction of God's wrath against the sins of the people. A little further in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us this concept to help us uh, to have a proper perspective on, on salvation. He says this, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Who are we talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. He freely justifies in verse 24. Freely justifies of his grace. So Jesus is put forth as a propitiation, a settlement or satisfaction of God's wrath by his blood. And it's, he is received by faith. Propitiation and salvation and Jesus are received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Listen, this is awesome. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, Jesus, God, doesn't just simply overlook our sin and say, it's fine, you sinned, but I'm a, I'm a loving, merciful, forgiving God, and therefore I welcome you into my kingdom. No, He is just, and therefore there must be a just payment for that sin, which is where the Lord Jesus comes in, and He lays Himself down as a just payment for my sin that would keep me perpetually from fellowship with God and eternally separate from God in the lake of fire. God is just. What he does in forgiveness is right. Because he is the one who justifies. He makes us righteous. Justification. Two concepts. We remember it. It's the removal of our sin. Remission. 
and it's the imputation of righteousness, grace. We have God taking away our sin and adding to our record Jesus' righteousness. And therefore, when we have been justified, we have a proper standing before the Lord. The word propitiation is related to the term mercy seat. That should give you a little bit of a visual imagery in your mind as you picture the things that are being recorded in the Old Testament about the the, the temple or the tabernacle and you get into the, the holy place and then deeper still behind the veil into what? The holy of holies. Inside there is what? The Ark of the Covenant. On top, the mercy seat stretched out above the angels uh, that are stretching their wings above. What happens in that room? How often does it happen? Well, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and not without blood. And he would sprinkle upon the mercy seat the blood shed as an atonement for the sin of the people. And that, that ceremony would be symbolic of God covering over the sin of the people eternally or temporarily. How do we know it's temporary? Because they did it again the next year, and the year after, and the year after, and the year after. It was a way to satisfy God's wrath for a period of time. But what Jesus' propitiatory work has accomplished, on the other hand, is Jesus has permanently satisfied the demands of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice for the one that has faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' propitiatory work permanently removes God's anger and wrath against the sin of God's people, those that have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone for eternal salvation. When we are on that side of God's judgment, covered by the perfect work of Jesus Christ, our fear of God is not terror. What will happen? What is going to happen to me now that I have not fulfilled this demand? What will happen one day when I stand face to face with my judge? The one who has been justified through Jesus Christ does not stand in terror before the judgment of the Lord, but instead we stand in amazement, in reverent, in awe, in respect, and in gratitude. For the believer, there is no condemnation, Romans 8, chapter 1, nor any separation, Romans 8, 35 and 39. As Solomon says elsewhere, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. As God's people, this is vitally important to lead us into our study now. As God's people, we are consciously or we must be consciously aware that we are living out our lives in God's presence. That he has purchased us and 
that we have a glorious future in which we will enjoy the fullness of his presence. We live our lives recognizing that not because of our actions, our goodness, our intellect, our pursuits, or our reverence, not because of any of that, we have had the judgment of God set aside because Jesus fully took that judgment in our stead because he became sin for us though he knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God through him. We stand, we stand freed. We stand justified. We stand declared righteous before God. With these things established, we can rightly approach the next section of the book of Ecclesiastes. The setting is the approach to and worship of God at the temple. And we can easily see how this translates to our gatherings together for worship as a church. Look at what he says here in Ecclesiastes beginning in verse 1. Ecclesiastes 5 beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Well, let's, let's start here. He, he has done something different than the first four chapters. He is now issuing commands. To this point, he has not been issuing commands. Here in this text, he is issuing commands. He's talking to the people of God about going to the temple of God. They're going to worship God. And he gives them very specific instructions, but he holds the main instruction to verse 7. The last instruction of this section is where he brings home the hammer. The real essence of what he's telling us, we must fear God. I would say, we must stand in awe of God. We must live in awe of God. We must walk in awe of God. We speak in awe of God. We listen in awe of God. We do in awe of God. We live in awe of God. This is what is absolutely, desperately necessary. He issues numerous commands, all relating to placing ourselves under the sovereign care of God. What has he been under thus far in many of his descriptions? Under the sun. 
under the heavens, under the temporary, transitional, transient elements of life. But here, he approaches the divine. He approaches who God is. And he lets us know to start off with, when you start to walk into that temple, when you start to walk into that house of God, here's the first thing you should do. You should listen with awe. Listen in awe. He contrasts listening with frivolous worship. Look at what he says. Guard your hearts when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To listen better than offering the sacrifice of fools. Solomon uses the Hebrew word zibach. It's used for offerings that were eaten by the offerer as opposed to the whole burnt offering which was completely consumed. I'll read to you what Michael Eaton wrote in one of his commentaries. He wrote, and he, and he doesn't inf- include the, the inflection, the, the guttural sound of that Hebrew word. So I'll try, to, I'll try to Englishize it for you. The zibah was an offering killed in sacrifice and then used as a meal in contrast to the whole burnt offering which was totally consumed in sacrifice. Listen to how he quotes uh, Keelan Dalich. As Dalich points out, it is the, the zibah which could de- uh, denigrate into thoughtless festivity or worse. So he's essentially saying, don't enter into the house of God frivolously, without thought, thinking, well, if I sing a few songs and give a few dimes and, 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 and listen through the service for a little bit and shake a few hands, I can walk away, I'll have done my, my duty, everything will be good, I can move about my life. Brothers and sisters, what I described to you as most of professing Christianity... I don't say that with glee in my heart. And I, don't, I really don't even mean that to come across as judgmentally as that sounds. It, it's just, you can see it. Don't enter into the house of God to pay your little tribute and move about your merry way and live life as if everything's like it was before you went. He tells us to approach with a reverent ear. James certainly gives us some agreement when he wrote, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to rest. So, so listen more than speak. Well, that can be applied to any situation. We're talking about coming into the house of the Lord. We're talking about coming to worship together. Why should we come to worship with our ears open? Why should we come to worship with our ears open? Well, I'll, I'll just give you some summary thoughts here. In a church that rightly exposits the Bible, you'll be hearing the very words of God. As a preacher, me or someone else, rightly conveys the truth of the text, you're hearing the words of God. The words that you, if you just read it, you're hearing the words of God, right? You don't have to listen for the words of God, as I've heard once before. Listen for the words of God as I read this. No, no, no. When, when the text is read, you're hearing the words of God. He's written them for you. He's inspired them and he's preserved them. This is the word of God. As the preaching goes on, as 
it is rightly explained, rightly exposited, you're hearing the very words of God. And in hearing the very words of God, uh, there is going to be an offer of salvation. In hearing the words of God, there will be comfort of the soul. In hearing the words of God, there will be wisdom for your life. In hearing the words of God, there will be anticipation for the future. In hearing the words of God, you will have hope from God. In hearing the words of God, there'll be sanctification for your spirit. In hearing the words of God, there'll be food for your inner man. And much, much more. When we hear the words of God, He gives us what we need. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15-17 through 17, for just a sampling of why we should have our ears open when we come to worship. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is, this is vital. We need to hear the Word of God. We come. We come not with our own agenda. We come not criticizing you know, where the instruments are. You guys, I have never heard you guys. Like we've done all kinds of different things. I never hear them say, why did you do that? Why did you do that? I'm, 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 this is a commendation. I'm like, it's, it's, it's wonderful. We, we change things up and like, paint the walls. And no one's saying, why did you cut, put, paint it like that? Why? Because there are more important things on the agenda. This is, this is a commendation to you. I, I could, right now, I clap for you and give you all a big hug. The, the main things, as a general rule, are kept as the main things. And the minor things are kept as the minor things. It's glorious. We come to hear the word of God. We come to be worshipers of God. We come listening what, what does God want to teach me today? Solomon paints a contrast now. The alternative to listening with awe is not just frivolous worship, though he includes that, but at the end of verse 1, Solomon says, they do not know that they are what? I'm going to try that again because I know you're there. But let's, let's all participate together. They do not know that they are doing evil. Frivolous worship equals doing evil. Not coming to listen equals doing evil. What are you listening to? Oh, the guy. The guy. No, it's not about the guy. It doesn't matter who's standing behind the pulpit. It's what does the word say? Thus saith the Lord. Am I listening to what God wants to communicate to me through the very words that He's inspired and preserved for me? Come, come, listen in awe. Secondly, speak with awe. Speak with awe. Look what He says in verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with your mouth 
nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty. Let your words be few. Could he have made his point any clearer? I don't think so. Don't make empty promises. Don't speak about how great you are. Don't speak about all of your accomplishments and don't speak about what you're going to accomplish. Just keep your mouth shh. Let's hear what he has done. Let's hear what he is doing. Let's hear what he will do. And how will I come underneath this glorious, gracious work? How will I submit myself to what God is doing? How can I be a vessel fit for His use? How can I be used by Him as, as an instrument for His glory, an instrument for His pleasure? Don't speak, speak great, swelling words about you or your program. It's just Him. What was behind all of this instruction? What really makes this instruction stand out? You know, Right in the middle of it, toward the end of verse 2, but in the middle of that section of 2 and 3, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Heaven? Where's that? Beyond the sun. Heaven? Above the sun. Heaven? Above the heavens. God rules. God reigns. God has created. God has sustained. God has saved. God has preserved. God rules. He's in heaven. And your life is but a vapor. Here for a little while. Vanishes away. And most of the time, at some point, everyone, everyone, everyone will forget you. No, not your kids. Not your grandkids, maybe. Those that are blessed with great-grandchildren, they probably won't forget you either. You've made an impact on them. But they're going to have kids, and then they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids. You will be forgotten. God is in heaven. You're on earth. You come into the house of the Lord. We want to hear from Him. The, the Proverbs are filled with statements about holding our tongue. Um, I'll just list a few of them just for consideration. Proverbs 29.11, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 13.16, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. Proverbs 29.11, A fool gives full... Oh boy, I did that one twice. There was supposed to be another verse there, but I don't remember what it was. But at least you got a double blessing of <laughs> Proverbs 29.11. Now we're talking about coming into worship now. So let's try to think about this. Let's try to apply this to the, to the setting that Solomon has written it for. Now we're not in the temple and we're not going to bring a sacrifice. But we're coming to worship the Lord, same as Israel would go to the temple. How many times while you're singing... Have you said, while well, you're singing these great words of um, dedication, think, God, I'm really struggling with this. Remember that, that one? We, we don't sing it often. It comes up. 
I surrender all? Oh, really? <laughs> all? Sometimes we hold back some things. I think that applies here, doesn't it? When we're singing, are you singing truth? If we're talking about God, absolutely. Talking about our responsiveness, sometimes we might struggle with what we're saying, right? Because sometimes we're not exactly what we're supposed to be. How many times have you said, I'm praying for you, but you haven't been? Let your words be few. God is in heaven. You're on earth. Are you speaking the words of fools? That's the question. So we listen with awe when we come. And we should be speaking with awe when we come. Thirdly, we must commit ourselves with awe. Commit ourselves with awe. Verses 4 through 6 says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? If I were to try to break this down and, and unfold it all, it would take us a long time. So I summarized it by using Michael Eaton's words, okay? Sorry, I, I was trying to do you a favor by keeping it brief. Michael Eaton wrote, The preacher moves to vows paid in the temple. The vow in ancient Israel was a promise to God, which might be part of prayer for blessing or a spontaneous expression of gratitude. It might take the form of a promise of allegiance, a free will offering, or the dedication of a child as a Nazarite. As in the matter of prayer, haste in taking a vow is cautioned against elsewhere. Here the preacher warns against delay and evasion. Pay what you vow. Failure in these respects is a mark of fools. Remember that every commitment that you make is made in the presence of God. Every commitment you make is made in the presence of God. In James 5.12, the Bible says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. There's another passage of Scripture. It's not on the screen. But in Psalm 15, listen to what, how God describes the person that is representative of his children. A person that is representative of, of someone that will reside eternally in his presence. In Psalm 15, O Lord, who... Uh, shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill. He who walks blameless, blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does not uh, evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. It's an interesting statement. The one that says, I'm going to do this, and when they do it, they, when they say it, you know they'll do it. It's a person of integrity. Isn't that what that is? 
This is the concept that Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is driving at about the commitments we make. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you'll do something, do it. If you can't do it, say I can't. Don't, don't try to make yourself look better. Don't try to make yourself look worse. Just do what you say you're going to do. Be a person of your word. Now listen to what he says. We're back in, in Ecclesiastes 5. In verse 4, he tells us that God has no pleasure in fools. In verse 5, it's better that you should not vow. And in verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into what? Does, Does God take seriously this thing about commitments? So, so we listen reverently. We listen in awe. We speak in awe. And then we make commitments in awe, recognizing who we're making this commitment in front of. And then he says at the end of verse 6, why should God be angry at your voice and then destroy the work of your hands? Isn't it interesting he doesn't say and destroy you? I think it's interesting. I think it's noteworthy. Even a believer can say words that warrant anger and notice where God's judgment falls on the work of our hands. God, I'm going to sell my property. I'm going to give it all to the church. Bring it. Here's all my property. I sold it. Here's all the loot. Remember what Peter said? Ooh, why has Satan caused you to lie to God when this property was all in your possession? Was it not your own? Did anyone tell you you had to give every single penny of it? No. But you said you did. What, what was the end of that story? Well, Ananias and Sapphira took, took that one on the, on the head, right? They, they both uh, went, went immediately from the earth. In this text, he's not talking about taking your life, but affecting your work. And so here I am making commitments. And then for some reason, I don't know why my business endeavors aren't working out the way that they ought to. This used to work. I used to be able to make money doing this, that, or the other thing. And for some reason, I can't do that anymore. Hmm, I wonder where that comes from. The Lord doesn't do that to everybody, does he? Sometimes people just go on their merry way and they're doing their own thing, in unethical things, and for some reason they seem to prosper. Solomon talks about that, doesn't he? Oh, why is it that some people have the rewards of the righteous when they're wicked, and some of the people that are doing the things that are righteous are receiving the rewards of the wicked? I don't understand all this. This is all vain. This is... That's just under the sun, folks just under the sun. It's just for a time. All the records will be straightened out. All the wrongs will be made right. There's a coming day. I'm going to receive, I'm going to receive in fullness something I never earned. I will be received into glory as if I did the work of Christ. What did I do? A lot of nothing and a lot of things negative. You see, God God has a way of working these things out. He's good. He's God. Back in this text, when we make commitments, do so realizing that you're in his presence. That he knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Live your life out in the presence of the Lord.
Which leads us to our last concept. Live with awe. Live with awe. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Who knows if it's all going to come to pass? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to be the greatest basketball player ever. I'm going to be the greatest football player ever. I am the greatest basketball player ever. I am the greatest football player ever. Yeah, well, keep talking. What difference? It's all going to pass away. Oh, there's something here. More. But God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. Whether in the church, the home, the workplace, or the marketplace, we are living our lives in the presence of God. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. If, if God has saved you, if you're born again, not only are you in His presence, but He dwells in you. It's a wonderful It's a wonderful blessing. He gives you His grace to listen. He gives you His grace to speak. He gives you His grace to commit yourself. And He gives you His grace to live a life of reverent awe. As we navigate these few days of this vain life that we live, to use Solomon's words, we see the power of God's hand in what he has made. Isn't it incredible when you see that sunset or that sunrise or that water rolling in on the seashore or that trickling brook? Isn't it just incredible? In the the fall, when you see the, the trees changing colors, when you look up into the sky and see the, the majesty of the innumerable stars, when you look at even just the moon. Last night, my wife was talking about a waning gibbous and some kind of a thing, thing, thing on the thing, thing. I don't know what she was saying. She said it was very beautiful. Her words were eloquent. Uh, something on the moon. Yes, happens only once in a while. Beautiful, though. Like, you look at it and say, wow, that's incredible. We look around and see all of the glorious things that God has made. We also are seeing him work out circumstances in our lives day by day. Small things, big things, medium things. We experience his good hand upon us. These are all reminders of his goodness. Our Savior, Jesus, was always aware of the presence of his Father. He lived out his life in perfect reverence to his Father. When Satan tempted him to prove his divinity, he said, no. No, I will not do that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When he was exhausted by travel and ministry, he ministered to the woman at the well, his disciples came back. Hey, you get something to eat already? No. I've been sustained. I've been satiated by doing the will of my Father. When pressed to the ultimate point of turmoil, Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And even at the point of death, into thy hands, 
he lived out his life in perfect reverence to his father because he was always consciously aware that he was living his life in his presence. That's what we're being called to here. Specifically, when we come into the house of the Lord, we call it church, when we come together as a church, when they approached the temple to live our lives that way, but I, I think it extends further. This is what it means to live a life of awe. Have you committed yourself to God? Have you committed your eternal soul to him? Have you committed your worship habits to him? Do you draw near to listen? Are you ready to have your ways amended when you hear the word of God? When you walk away in a few minutes, will you be fully aware that you're living your life out in the presence of God? One more question. Which side of God's judgment are you on? Have you received from God the remission of your sin, the, the relief from your sin, the removal of all of your sin? Have you received from God the eternal gift of eternal righteousness? Have you been justified? If you've been justified, you're on the right side of God's judgment. If you don't know what justification means as I've described it, then I, I would just tell you straight out, lovingly, kindly, I hope, that you're on the wrong side of God's judgment. You don't understand what it means to have your sin forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus Christ added, then you do not know God as your Father. And you would then be on the other side, the wrong side of God's judgment, and you would have reason to be very afraid of that day that you breathe your last breath. But there's a corrective to this, folks. There's a corrective. Realize that you're a sinner. Turn from your sin and realize that it has nothing to offer you. Turn to Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the plan of God and laid his life down as a once-for-all sacrifice to pay for your sin and to provide for you eternal righteousness. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. God will remove your sin, give you the righteousness you need so you can be on the right side of God's judgment where you don't need to fear him. You respect him. You're in awe of him. You're admiring him and knowing that the, the just payment you'll receive is because of the just payment already made through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all you've done for us. I pray for every believer here that we would not be unchanged by our time of worship in your word, but that we would be even forever changed that we would humbly live out our lives in reverence to you, that we would love you more now than ever. I pray for anyone in here that's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that even today they would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and ask you to save them, knowing that that is exactly what you're willing to do. All who come to you, you will not cast out. We ask that you do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.